I'm Lucas. And I'm Jesse. And this is Double Blind. Every week, Lucas and I get together and we talk about the coolest new research we can find. I'm in Vancouver right now. Lucas is in Ottawa. You're probably somewhere in between or below or anywhere else. We're ready to share two new, awesome, exciting science stories with you. So if you're as curious as we are, come with us. We know it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, wired minds hooking up brains to other brains. And the bees needs how climate is changing the range of bumblebees. Jesse, why don't you get us started? Okay, this is a crazy one, Lucas. Okay. I've got a crazy story today that I spent hours pouring through these two, two insane neuroscience studies that came out in the same issue of Nature. All right. Uh, these were done by mostly the same people out of Duke University. Okay. And we're going to talk about brain-to-brain interfacing today. So that is taking your brain and plugging it into my brain? Hey, give it a couple years. That is basically the premise. This is this is hooking up through through an intermediary computer. Okay. One organism's brain to another organism's brain. And in this case in, in this story, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a spoiler alert here. We're gonna get to a point of hooking four rats' brains up to each other. Whoa. So brace yourself. Okay, so these were two studies that were both published in the same issue of nature. And the one they did first was the study on monkeys, um, specifically rhesus monkeys. The researchers put multi-electrode arrays in which are just sort of these big nets of electrodes okay in the motor and somatosensory cortexes of the brain okay you're gonna have to i mean motor cortex i can sort of guess what that does that's movement yeah somatosensory motor cortex is movement and somatosensory cortex is sensation perception uh senses it's it's what we see feel hear, etc sure and these are areas on the outside of the brain that handle the bulk of that sort of information of the motor information and the sensory information all right So these monkeys were implanted with these electrodes and then given a challenge. Their challenge was to grab a virtual ball with a virtual arm on a screen by using their minds. Whoa. Yeah. So I should give a bit of background here. In the past, there have been studies where monkeys have been hooked up to these electrode arrays and with the power of their mind, learned to control sort of computer interfaces or this sort of virtual ball, virtual arm thing that was used in this. So that's been done before, where you take a monkey, read its brain activity, and use that to teach it to control with its mind something else. Okay. This was the first time that it was done with multiple monkeys controlling the same thing. At the same time? At the same time. And that was the key to this. So in this first experiment that was done, two or three monkeys were all hooked up to the computer to create something that the researchers called a brain net. Brain net? A brain net. Net of brains. Okay. Sure enough, as it turns out, three monkeys are better than one. Really? These monkeys are using their thoughts to try and move this arm to grab a ball on the screen. Mm. And when the three monkeys were all using their brains to try and grab the ball, the net result when everything was put together and averaged was more effective grabbing of the ball. Really? Okay, so they don't... They didn't conflict with each other? No, they tended to be doing the same thing. And you can imagine that would be the case, right? Because they're, they're, they're all seeing the arm in the same position. And so they're all kind of thinking, okay, go up, left, up, left, up, left. Right. And they're generally, they have a common goal, right? 
Okay, so would that be because all their brains are working a little differently and sort of the average signal is clearer than the parts? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Okay. There's just a lot more accuracy there because if one monkey is struggling or distracted, the others pick up the slack and that 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 gets lost as noise. And so, so that's that's a pretty cool result on its own. Mm-hmm. But it's really just the first step in this study. So they went on to the second experiment after this where they had a two-monkey brain net, which means we've got two monkeys hooked up to the computer through their brains. Okay, yeah. And they're doing the same task where there's this two-dimensional hand moving around a screen trying to grab a ball. But one monkey is controlling the x-axis and the other is controlling the y-axis, which means one monkey's brain is responsible for moving the hand up or down. Yeah. And the other one is responsible for moving it left or right. And that's all that each of them can do. Right. They can't affect the other's axis at all. Exactly. Which means they need to be able to work together in order to do their part and accomplish the task to get the food reward. Oh, yeah. That, that's that's an important point. This is all motivated with the food reward. This is all motivated by the food reward. It has nothing to do with grabbing the ball. No. It has everything to do with the food they get if they grab the ball. No. These poor monkeys could not care less about the stupid ball. Uh, I, I, I do feel bad for the, for the animals in the study. As it turns out, they were more successful, again, at grabbing the ball working together with slightly different subtasks of one doing the X and one doing the Y axis okay. than just one monkey alone trying to grab the ball. Mm-hmm. So already we're kind of proving that it, it works to just add more monkeys to the job <laughs> and it works to split those tasks <laughs> into pieces. So first one was three monkeys all trying together, doing the same thing. Second one was the two monkeys with the, with the task split in half where one was doing one axis and the other was doing the other. The third experiment used a three monkey brain net and this is this is this is the language that's used in the study, by the way. I'm not I'm not just saying this. They, the researchers write things in, in their official research paper, like in the three monkey brain net. So in the three monkey brain net, what they did is they created a 3D model of a hand and ball. So it's moving around in 3D space, which means there's three axes now. There's an X, Y, and a Z axis. Mm-hmm. Much more complicated. Exactly. And what they did, because there's three monkeys, is that each monkey has 50% control of two of the axes. Whoa. So that's kind of a complex concept. That is complex, yeah. If you if you hold out your hand in the air, one axis is moving it up and down, yeah. right? Another is moving it towards and away from your body. Yeah. And the other one is moving it left to right, mm-hmm. right? Those are your three axes. So we've got the three monkeys, and monkey monkey one, when he thinks about moving the hand, he's able to control its movement on the up and down axis, and the left and right axis. Mm-hmm. Monkey two can control the left and right axis and the towards and away from you axis. Right. And monkey three can control the towards and away from you axis and the up and down axis. So each axis is given by an average of two monkeys' thoughts. Right. So this is a perfect combination of those first two experiments, right? Okay. Because what we've got now is each axis is being controlled by the average of two monkeys' thoughts. And each monkey has a small subtask that's a piece of the whole task. So the monkeys are looking at two-dimensional representations of this hand from the, the sort of camera angle that would make sense for where, where their motion is. Mm-hmm. And that way it's a lot simpler for them than looking at the 3D space, which is a more complex task. Yeah. As it turned out, the success rate was really high on this. Um, with practice, it rose from a 7% success rate in grabbing the ball to 50% over the course of the trial. Okay. And it was way, way, way higher than a single monkey trying to grab 
the ball in 3D space on his own. Through practice, monkeys can learn this stripped-down, simple version of the task much more efficiently and therefore have more success together than a single monkey trying to learn exactly. the entire task themselves. We're basically splitting up the processing of a complex task. Okay. Here's the big question. This is the first thing I thought to myself, is aren't all those experiments just the same as the first one? Weren't all of the monkeys just trying to move the arm as individuals? Mm-hmm. And not thinking about, oh, I'm responsible for this direction and this direction? Yeah. And I actually couldn't find that in any of the articles that reported on this study, I had to go into the actual study to find the answer. So listeners, this is the the only place you're going to be able to find that information until somebody else decides to write about it. Um, or just go to the original study, which we encourage all the time. The, the important note that was in the study is that as the trial went on, the amount of movement that the monkeys thought about on the axes that they didn't control decreased dramatically oh when they realized they're not responsible for an axis they just they, they stopped thinking about it they only focused on the thing that they were responsible for right um so they were only focused on their little subtasks by the end and that was when they were the most successful because they got better with practice over the course of the study right yeah so as they realized that even though they could see the x and y axes that they were only controlling the x-axis mm-hmm. they focused on that and they got more efficient as a group okay so this, I mean, this shows pretty well how how effective it could be to solve complex problems by spreading the work amongst a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. N- now we move to the rat study. Okay, so that was monkeys. That, that was the preliminary monkeys one, was this monkey study. Okay. So the monkey brains only had an output. They were, they were reading information from the monkey brains to accomplish that task of grabbing the ball. Mm-hmm. In the study they did with rats, they had an output and an input. Okay. So that means that on the contralateral somatosensory cortexes, they put something called a intracortical microstimulation. And now let's oh, back up and talk about that. There's some words there, yeah. <laughs> okay, so contralateral. So they place these on the contralateral somatosensory cortexes. Somatosensory cortex, as we talked about, is that part of the outside of the brain. Mm-hmm. And contralateral mean, meaning on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. So they had an input on one side of the brain, on the somatosensory cortex and the output on the other side. Huh. Okay. And what they used for the input to stimulate the brain was something that is shortened to ICMS and it's intracortical microstimulation. Okay. So that's, that, that all makes sense. Intra inside cortical okay. cortex, the brain. Okay. Microstimulation, little, little electrical impulses, little electric shocks. Okay. Yeah. After these rats were had had recovered from the implantation procedure for these electrodes, mm-hmm. um, they were deprived of water, and then that would later be used as the reward. Okay, it's mean. I don't know why it couldn't just be cheese or something. It seems cruel. Yeah, right. So, with the the first test here, in groups of four, the rats were given one of two ICMS signals in their input, either an A or a B signal. Okay, so this differs how? There, one of them is a, a single long pulse and the other is two Mm -hmm. short pulses okay so when they received the a signal they were trained to synchronize their brains so that the outputs were doing the same thing (laughs) what the heck does that mean that's what i've been trying to figure out for hours okay (laughs) the study constantly says the rats synchronized their brains mean like similar electric signals in their minds yeah so the the idea is if you think about what's going on in the rat's brain there's this input on one side and then a bunch of neurons in the middle that we're not in control of, and then this output in the other side. Really what the researchers are trying to understand here is, 
Can they send a signal in and have the rats translated in their head and use that as a stimulus to think about something or behave in a certain way such that an output comes out the other side that's recognizable? Right. So they're, and when you say input and output, are they detecting the signal that they're inputting to the brain and just detecting how the brain changes it? They're, they know what signal they're putting in. So they're putting in whatever signal. Yeah. And then they're, they're reading the output, right? Okay. I think the equivalent with humans would basically be if we had this input and output in our brain, it was the kind of thing where uh, every time the signal came in, you'd experience like a weird motion or feeling or sense somewhere in your body and you'd learn to recognize that. Uh, okay. Yeah. So let's say, for example, you're, you basically are trained that when a signal is sent, you feel a tickle in your cheek. And if you feel that tickle, you should think about grapes. Right. So I have no idea what the rats were experiencing or what they were thinking, what they about. Were thinking about. Um, but when they received the signals, they did have some behavioral things like twitching their tails and licking their lips. So something was being experienced by them. Right. And then in the end, they were taught to think of the same thing because if they did, they would get water. They would get water if they got the, yeah. if the output came out of the brain that the researchers wanted. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So there was four rats in this particular brain net mm-hmm. and they were trained to sync up their thoughts by being rewarded with water when they all had the same output coming out. This happened and it, and it actually worked. The rats were quickly able to synchronize their brains uh, to the point where the data was so similar that it looked like one rat. Really? Yeah. So they were yeah. getting really consistent signals out of these rats. Wow. Um, and they actually tested encoding and decoding of an image using this by sending one by one signals that indicated pixels being on or off that formed an image. Okay. And then got the results back out of the brain net based on the average result of the rats. Right. And they were okay. able to recreate that image afterwards. They communicated that signals are on and off based on A signal or B signal being input to the rat's brain. Yes. And then they look for the output, which they know to be associated with A signal or B signal, and recreated the image as a result of that. Yes. Right? Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and it was a little garbled, but it, it did work, and it did come out the other end with some semblance of how it went in. So in the next experiment that they did with the rats, they trained the rats to form this sort of thought train. They wanted to test the, this brain net. And every time I say brain net in this case, I'm referring to this array of interconnected rats. Right. So they wanted to test the use of the brain net for storage and retrieval of memories and information. So they gave rat number one in the brain net an ICMS, that little stimulation in the brain of either the A or the B signal. And then the output they fed into the next rat, okay. into rat two. And then it's like a mental human centipede. Yeah, that, you know, I thought of that. I wasn't going to say it, Lucas, but of course you go there. So then the output of rat two, they feed into rat three. The output of rat three, they feed into rat four. The output of rat four, they feed back into rat one. And then they look at the output from rat one. It's a loop. It's a loop of rats. It's a loop of rats. And okay. most of the time, it actually came out accurate. It was a way higher success rate than by chance. Huh. So they were able to retain that information, passing it through all these rats' brains. So after that, they also did a bunch more experiments on, on these rats, some of which were a little bit ridiculous, like using them to predict the likelihood of rain by kind of hooking them up together like a computer. Oof. I, I won't really get into because it's ridiculously complicated. And the important part is that they're still, all of these experiments were proving the same basic idea, which is that they can send an input to a rat's brain and get an output that matches it and read that. 
okay, they can consistently use a rat's brain to carry a message. Semi-consistently. It was not 100% of the time by, by any of stretch of the imagination, yeah. but but pretty yeah. good. Okay. Um, and so uh, the, the important thing about this is that the rats needed to be awake and they needed to expect a reward for it to work. Oh, so they, these are actually thoughts that the rats are having. Yes, exactly. This isn't just using conductivity through a brain. No, totally, because that's the first thing that I was wondering. And it, again, that's something that was not really reported on in the media. Um, okay. I read a lot of the news stories that were published about this, and I had the, the, those two big questions for the monkey study and, and this one. For the monkey study, that one of, aren't they all just kind of trying to do that thing and it's averaged? And yeah. for this one, the aren't we just kind of conducting electricity along the brain or something like that? But no, mm-hmm. the rats needed to be awake. And if the rewards were not given out, uh, they stopped, they stopped sending out the output. So this is a conscious thinking effort that the rats are doing. Yeah. So that, so that's basically it. Um, I, I wanted to just mention, cause I found this out and I think it's crazy that we've kind of actually done this with humans before. Really? Yeah. I had no idea, but in 2014, which was last year, Two subjects were actually, two human subjects were linked up over the internet using um, EEG and TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. So it's electrodes on the outside of the head. Okay, and EEG is? EEG is electroencephalogram, which is electrodes on the outside of the head. So they're not having to cut open human heads to do this. Okay. Um, We talked a couple weeks ago about the ECOG, which is putting electrodes on 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 the actual surface of the brain um, yeah. and that only worked because they were patients already had their heads cut open etc yeah so in this case this was done with through the skull and the experiment was such that these two subjects were playing a game but the person who was looking at the screen of the computer game couldn't control anything so oh, they, were, okay, they yeah. were hooked up such that the guy who's watching the screen would think about moving his hand mm-hmm. and then those thoughts would be translated to computer signals sent over the internet and then translated through that magnetic stimulation into the other guy's brain which would cause his hand to twitch and move and and press Whoa. the the button that would shoot oh that sounds crazy yeah it's really really very very cool but this is this is something that's being studied a lot right now uh, so in terms of implications um yeah i mean i'm i'm left wondering why What's what's our advantage to doing this with rats or monkeys, and where where are we going with this? Yeah, this is one of those one of those studies where it's really cool stuff, but it's kind of proof of concept still. <laughs> There's definitely like the most promising area that this is going to lead to is organic computing, right? We're building we're building neural nets right now where we're trying to make computers imitate how our brains work. Right. These researchers and many others are probably thinking more along the lines of just hooking our brains up to each other and using those. I mean, can you imagine? a bunch of researchers trying to solve a complicated problem with their brains all hooked up together. <laughs> I don't know if that would be wonderful or terrible. Probably, <laughs> Probably terrible. a little bit of both. Probably a little bit of both. That's true. From the, from the monkey study, we learn about the possibility of combining workload by mm-hmm. letting individuals focus on small tasks that are a bigger part of the whole to contribute towards doing something more effectively. Uh, and from the rat study, we're learning that we can also have that input on the brain and actually send the signals that our brains create to other brains, not just read stuff off of them. Ooh, it's it's fascinating, but I'm unable to see the big picture. I'm unable to see down the road of the future and where this is going to. I mean, yeah, I, I can't either. I have, n- I have no idea. 
I suppose one day I might hook my brain up to someone else's and we'll work on a problem together. <laughs> but I, at the moment, fail to see how this relates to that because fundamentally I still understand this as the rats receive an input and then they've been trained to think of an output because they get a reward. Mm-hmm. And because the rats need to be awake, I mean, I don't see how this is any different than poking a rat and having it do a trick. In terms of what the rat's brain is doing, it's not not remotely different. It's exactly the same. Right. It's just the mechanics of it. Yeah. The difference is that we are using new technology to read that information directly off the rat's brain. So it doesn't even have to do anything. Right. Gotcha. The rat can just sit there. Yeah. Which kind of makes it a lot more creepy. It makes it way more creepy. It really does. There's a lot of people speculating about you know, how could this be used. One, one idea that I thought was interesting was they were talking about how you could have uh, a surgeon performing surgery with the help of a number of other surgeons' brains watching. Whoa. So any hand slips or mistakes would be mediated by the averaging out factor. Right. Could be canceled out. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that goes along with the monkey monkey part of it. It raises right now. It raises more questions than it answers. Uh, yeah, it's kind of profoundly creepy. It is, but I like the surgeon idea. Yeah, I see why that could be useful. Yeah, I I do think it's the kind of thing where once we get to the point where we can do this with humans, with with accuracy, because that study with humans was not done with much accuracy, which is the problem with using the outside of the skull. But once we can do this with humans with accuracy, I, I don't even think we can begin to imagine the possible uses for it at this point. Okay. Bees. 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 So... Uh, with global climates in a state of accelerated change at the moment, we're in the midst of a worldwide redistribution of where things like to live, right? Yep. Animals and plants tend to have these very specific temperature preferences. They like it how they like it. Mm-hmm. And the truth is if temperature changes, animals tend to move, as do plants. The And it might not be a specific animal moving because these changes are rather slow, but the overall distribution of where things can be found shifts. Right. And overall recently, with the world overall warming, there's been this pattern of species moving towards the pole. Right. right? So as, as temperatures warm, there's more region available in northern areas that used to be too cold for things. Yeah. And then they move move north it's less crowded and less competition exactly so southern borders of habitat ranges tend to stay relatively static and northern borders tend to move north okay so over the last couple decades this has been demonstrated for all sorts of plants and animals on both land and in the ocean okay and recently a study was published in the journal science which did exactly this for very specifically bumblebees okay so bumblebees are our good friends who sometimes aren't our friends at all but we do care about them a lot because they pollinate our food uh in fact flying pollinators are responsible for about 35 percent of the world's agricultural crop production wow i didn't realize it was that high that's a huge chunk of food now that's all flying pollinators but bumblebees make up a significant portion of that right 
So what these researchers did is they compiled a lot of records of people seeing bees at a particular place. Okay. Essentially, they found every possible historical record they could of someone saying, I was here on this date and I saw this bee. <laughs> oh my God. And now I make that sound rather casual, but this, these are scientific observations. Okay. Of particular bumblebee species. So this isn't just like people posting on Facebook that they got stung by a bee. This is not just Facebook. This, these are actually scientific observations. Okay. So they covered North America and Europe. The observations include 67 different species of bumblebee. Wow, there's that many species of bumblebee? Yeah. That's it's amazing. No, not all bumblebees are equal. I, I, I had no idea. I thought they were a species of their own. Yeah, I, actually me too. I'll be honest. Cool. <laughs> okay. um, these dated from 1901 to 2010 in terms of observations. Wow. So they had 110 years here. Pre and over those 110 years, they had 423,000 observations. Holy cow. So they did a pretty good job of compiling these. Yeah, that's amazing. And all they did is they took each species and they looked at how their range in terms of geographic regions they're found in changed over that period of time. Right. And the most concerning thing is, in terms of the northern limit of all these bumblebees, they didn't find any change. Oh. So they found the bees are not moving north. However... If they turn towards the southern limits, the range has shrunk quite dramatically over that period of time by, wow. as, by as much as 300 kilometers in both North America and Europe. Holy cow. So what they're finding is the habitat of these bees is shrinking on one side and it doesn't appear to be expanding on the other side. Jeez. Okay. So why? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a really key question. As we've stated many times in this show, correlation is not causation. Yeah. And they looked at a couple other mechanisms to try to figure this out. Because so far, they only have, in terms of actual observations, they've got the period of time and the range of the bees. Yes. They also looked at changes in land use over that period of time, because, of course, humans have deforested a lot of things, covered a lot of things in agriculture. And they also looked at use of pesticides okay. over that period of time. So a bunch of human factors. Yeah, a bunch of human factors. And by far, the best correlation was warming temperatures. Okay. The question is, why aren't bees pushing northwards? Right. I mean, it might be just that they're slower to adapt to changes than the climate is changing at the moment. Mm. Or it might be that there's another factor we're unaware of, right? That's keeping these ranges confined to the south. So do we have any ideas what those other factors could be? Not really. I mean, this result suggests the factor isn't temperature, hmm. which, which is largely what ecologists often think of as limiting a species distribution. Yeah, climate. Yeah, climate, exactly. So this study suggests it might not be, but what it is, we still don't know. And this is an area we need to look into more. What should be done about it? Well, this study only looks at the habitat ranges. It doesn't actually look at the populations. Okay. But we know there have been a lot of issues with bee populations recently. Yeah, it's something we hear about every year or so, I feel like. Exactly. In fact, one thing I noted is that stories about bees tend to gain a lot of traction on the internet. Yeah. They tend to drum up a lot of buzz. Oh, for crying out loud. Um, a word of warning, there is actually a lot of bad science out there related to bee articles on the internet. There's a <laughs> lot of pseudoscience being passed around. Okay. Colony Collapse Disorder, CCD, there are a lot of websites dedicated to it. Yeah. This is the essentially spontaneous collapse of bee colonies, the massive death of bees. Yeah. Which is a well-documented phenomenon. But it's really unclear the factors leading to it. And there's a lot of websites which blame cell phone use, genetically modified organisms, or pesticides. And the evidence on all three of those is circumstantial. Right. At best. 
um, except for the pesticides. Pesticides, certain types have been really closely related. But once again, this study looked at pesticides on a massive scale and found those patterns couldn't be scaled up. Okay, interesting. It's interesting that all of these uh, bee studies online, they inevitably will end with a quote from Einstein. Every single time, they will end with a quote from Einstein, which says, if the bee disappeared off the surface of the globe, then man would only have four years of life left. Which is kind of terrifying. Is that based off of anything, or is that just Einstein? Well, here's the thing. It should be noted there's absolutely no evidence that Einstein ever said this in his life. But just to warn a warning to our listeners, be extra careful. Be always careful when reading stories about science on the internet. But be extra careful when it has to do with bees. If you don't, if you don't know about it, Snopes.com is amazing for Snopes.com for debunking myths and stories that are shared online that are not true. And it's got a lot of bee articles. So in conclusion, the bees are under a lot of pressure. We're not entirely sure why. It's been suggested that a next step would be to attempt to place bee colonies at higher latitudes to see if they can survive. Yeah. To see if it's just a speed of expansion or if it's some sort of other factor. Right. Whether they're not moving there or they actually can't survive there. Exactly. Um, But that has yet to be seen. Thanks for listening. That's it for this week. We've got links to all the studies we discussed and more in this episode's show notes. Those are at doubleblindscience.com. Hopefully you've enjoyed our adventure into this week's science news. Check back next week. We're going to have two new and exciting stories for you. Did you see something in the news you'd like us to cover? Perhaps a headline seems a little too good to be true? Or a story that no one's quite clearly explaining? Give us a shout by email stories at doubleblindscience.com or on Twitter at doubleblindsci. See you next week. There's, there's got to be someone somewhere who, who will take issue with that, that no, not all jobs are accomplished more better with more monkeys <laughs> yeah this feels infinite infinite monkeys infinite typewriters there's, there's gotta yeah. be a joke in there somewhere